The Smiley Professionals Network presents its first podcast, The Smiley Connection. We'll speak with professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to bring you compelling stories about their career journeys. We'll laugh, we'll learn, and we'll connect. Who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Yale madad and hello to everyone. It's Reem Merchant your host. And on today's show we have Dr. Ali Asani. Dr. Ali Asani is a Moray A. Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic Religion and Cultures at Harvard University. He has also served as the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and director of the Prince Al Walid Islamic Studies program. The author of many articles and several books, he has been a recipient of awards for outstanding teaching. In 2020, he was recognized as faculty of the year by the Harvard Foundation. and also appointed to the board of governors for the institute of ismaili studies dr asani your choice of career has been very intriguing what inspired you to choose this field and what has been your journey yeah thank you for that question it's um because i have a lot to say about this especially because i've been in this career for almost four decades uh so it's also you know reflecting on my on my journey but uh there are of course key elements that i would say um uh that influenced my decision i think to uh focus on islamic studies and particularly ismaili studies um and i would say it sort of goes back to my coming to harvard as an undergraduate the big event in my first year uh that made that convinced me about going into you know specializing in ismaili studies was i was taking arabic everybody told me you should if you're doing islamic studies or you must take classical arabic so i took classical arabic with a professor who was from university of beirut and um he was a very good professor but i remember one day during the class he uh he asked me uh well what kind of muslim are you like what what's your sect and i said i was ismaili and he was horrified um you know he used this expression uh that you know people use you know the, it's in arabic you know la hawla wal quwwata illa billah that there is no refuge except in god because he had all these conceptions of ismailis as heretics and you know the assassins and all of that and he was horrified you know just to see that i was in this class um and for me that was a you know one sort of telling moment you know like wow you know this is how you know here at harvard and admittedly this professor is from the middle east but you know the conceptions of being ismaili and i thought well, we've got a long way to go and um and there were no other i i would take some courses on islam but they oh there was no mention of the ismailis whatsoever it was like it was a silenced voice it just didn't exist and a few professors who actually um knew that i was ismaili you know would sometimes just 
you know, tease me or something like, oh, you're here on a secret mission to assassin pe assassinate people. It was, you know, when I reflect on those days, you know, nowadays we talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging. Well, those were the days that nobody believed in any of that. And so, but it motivated me that I have to study this tradition and I have to, um, you know, establish, you know, do something about it and have make sure there's a voice in the academy. So that, you know, that was a motivation, motivating factor. And I did find some professors who actually knew about the Ismailis. One particular was uh, Professor Anne-Marie Schimmel, who was a German professor and who came here only in the spring semester, but she was very well aware of the Ismailis. And she was very supportive. And so, and she was somebody who was interested in literature and poetry and things. So she became a great influence on me. So it, uh, but, you know, when I reflect back and now I think that many, many years later, uh, I'm a tenured professor at Harvard and I'm actually teaching courses on Ismaili history and thought in the Harvard curriculum. I teach another course on Kawali Sufi poetry and the Ginans. And I think about, you know, what a, you know, in four decades, really, what a change in the scenario. So, um, so I, I think those are some sort of, you know, thoughts that I have in terms of what it means to um, get a voice in the academy. That's really interesting. You've been an unconventional scholar in this field, someone who really has pushed the boundaries of Islamic studies by including traditions and communities that have historically not been at the center of scholarly attention. By focusing on the lived experiences of people, by talking about Kavalis, Ginans, musical traditions, poetries, Sufi shrines, etc. In your work, you also talk about cultural approach. Can you talk a little bit more about this and what led you to take this approach and why do you think it's important for the field? Okay, so first I'll talk about, you know, this, you know, highlighting the the marginalized, you know, uh, voices, because, you know, as we know that there are, uh, Islam is a very diverse tradition. Um, and, you know, some, some interpretations tend to get more attention uh, than others. Uh, and, you know, for instance, as I've mentioned already, that by and large, the, in the academy, um, most of the scholars study Sunni Islam. Very few actually at that point studied anything to do with Shiism, let alone Ismailism. So there was obvious, and the sources that they that they used all came out with a Sunni perspective. A very little room for the Shia. So I think when I actually started um, my work, um, I you know, and I started first initially with the Ginans because that was a tradition that wasn't, that was hardly known, uh, in the academy. Uh, and again, with the guidance of Professor Schimmel, I was able to my undergraduate thesis on this. And then I went on to do my PhD work on this. And then I started publishing in that field of Ginanic studies, which, you know, people didn't know much about. Uh, and, 
what was very interesting about this developing this genomic studies was that it was not just highlighting an Ismaili sort of voice and a construction, uh, but it was emphasizing South Asia. Now, you know, the majority, the largest concentration of Muslims in the world live in South Asia or are of South Asian descent. In the academy, the emphasis is on the Middle East. And to find courses on South Asia or Southeast Asia are very rare. So this emphasis on the Ginans on the one hand also emphasized an aspect of the broader Islamic tradition that gets ignored in courses about Islam. So imagine the voices of almost, if you take South and Southeast Asia together, they contain within these two geographic areas, 70% of the world's Muslims. But in the courses on Islam uh, at that point, and even still some today, the predominant voice is the Middle Eastern. People know hardly anything about South, Southeast Asia or of Africa. So, uh, so it wasn't just the Ismaili sort of, you know, voice that I was highlighting, but I was also highlighting a voice from the Muslim world where, which didn't have a voice in the academy. Uh, so, um, and then because of my interest with the Ginans, because, you know, the Ginans are recited, they're sung, they are set to ragas, and it made me realize that the traditional approaches in the academy was about the text, you know, you analyze the text, you come up with the meaning, you look at the manuscripts and so on. But I realized that these, these, uh, these texts are actually meant to be experienced because the raga has, the rag has an aesthetic behind it. And you're supposed to experience the text and people feel, you know, it, it, it provides knowledge that is both ethical, moral, um, spiritual, but it's also aesthetic, because the aesthetic is just as important as the moral, the ethical, the spiritual. So realizing that actually religion is something that is multi-sensory. It's not just about text, and it's not just about identity, and that this multi-sensory nature of religion is very important, because it breaks you know, ways of thinking about religion within specific boundaries, you know, Shia and Sunni and Ismaili, because a beautiful Ginan uh, can resonate emotionally with even somebody who's not Ismaili and say how beautiful it is. And in the history of Ginans, we have this. And then it sort of broadened my horizon to think about well, Kawali and Sufi poetry. They all have this multisensory. And that uh, that whole approach made me think about um, that why aren't we talking about Islam as a multi-sensory experience and that the majority of Muslims who are not, um, you know, who don't have the tools or don't have the opportunity to study texts and philosophy and theology, how do they experience their faith? And it's it's through the, through the arts, you know, the sound arts, the visual arts, the poetic arts are very central, and the Qur'an is like that too, because the Qur'an is meant to be experienced. So this whole approach made me eventually think about that, how do we approach the study of religion? And I would, uh, the approach that I have adopted, um, drawing on the work of other scholars, is called this cultural studies approach. 
that it's premised on the notion that religion is a phenomena that is complexly embedded in in all kinds of contexts, political, economic, social, literary, artistic, aesthetic, and so on and so forth. And as these contexts change, ideas about religion change. So these contexts influence the notions of religion. And because it is embedded in these contexts, religion is on the one hand dynamic and on the other hand diverse. So depending on which Muslim you are talking about, in which context, you know, you'll come out with very different interpretations. So that's why we have diversity within Islam, because the context of Muslims, the political, economic, social, linguistic, are all different, and they're all changing. So um, so thinking about a religious tradition that way, and looking at diverse voices, and then looking at which of these voices are being marginalized and silenced, and what can we do to highlight them? And generally speaking, you know, within the context of Islam, you have the political Islam, uh, what um, Muhammad Arkun, a scholar of Islam, is called the loud Islam, the Islam of, the, you know, we could say the political Islam, the Islam that uh, sees Islam as a political, uh, people see Islam as a political ideology of identity, of power, of control. And that is the image of Islam that is dominant in the, in the social spaces, in media spaces, in academic spaces. But the Islam of ordinary people and how they experience it uh, aesthetically uh, and the beauty that they find in it is totally silenced. So I've taken on, you know, in my teaching, I've tried to diversify the teaching to make sure that these silenced forms of Islam also have a voice. And so it's um, uh, uh, and so it's been very interesting, you know, this approach to thinking about Islam for my students is very powerful because I involve them in actually when I'm giving them project is they have to express ideas and concepts that they've learned um, through an artistic medium. Talk about a concept, an idea you learned, and then do something creative with it and explain to me what you've done with it and how you're communicating this idea to other audiences. So it has had great impact also on my pedagogy, the way I teach. Yeah. Talking about your journey, how has the field of Islamic studies evolved over the years? Yeah, so, you know, Islamic studies is a very complex field. It's um, It involves many disciplines. You know, traditionally it started with philology, textual studies. Um, and then, of course, there was history. Uh, uh, so those were the dominant fields. But then eventually over time you find fields like anthropology, uh, sociology, and so on, and art, and art history, and so on coming in. So Islamic studies you know, is, uh, you know, has many different fields. Um, and you're finding now that there is, of course, more diversity in the approaches to studying Islam as they, than they were like when I first started. And of course, this emphasis of talking about Islam outside the Middle East is becoming very important. So for example, at 
You know, when I came to Harvard, there was not a single course on Islam in Africa or Southeast Asia or South Asia. Um, and now you find that, you know, as, as the field has developed and changed, especially at Harvard, we have a professor who does African Islam. And we have a professor who does Southeast Asian Islam. And then, of course, I do some work on South Asian Islam. Uh, and then there are others who are working on Middle East and things. And then there's some people working on Islam in America. So the field in its geographic scope has really developed, I would say. Um, again, part of trying to be more inclusive of voices. You were teaching Islamic studies at Harvard when 9-11 happened. How was your experience at that time and how did you deal with any challenges that you might have had to face? Yeah, that 9-11 was a, um, a very interesting time because on the one hand, um, uh, you know, there was a great deal of interest on Islam. But that interest was coming out of a sense of fear. We need to learn this dangerous. We need to learn more about this danger. Um, and I happened to be at that time, uh, you know, uh, teaching about Islam here. And I was visibly the, you know, the, a Muslim professor who actually, you know, was proud of being Muslim and teaching courses in, in the college. And so very, uh, and then I was also involved in diversity inclusion work in the college. Um, uh, and very often, you know, trying to uh, raise some of the experiences of Muslim students on campus, especially of discrimination, of Islamophobia, and so on. So when 9-11 happened, uh, I somehow found myself, you know, the focus of many uh, of a lot of interest and people wanted me to appear in this panel or give this lecture or appear on this show and so on. So those weeks were incredibly busy, you know, trying to dispel um, uh, notions about Islam and Muslims as terrorists and trying to contextualize the study of Islam, that Islam is many voices, Islam is many stories, listen to the stories that you haven't heard of. You may be hearing about these terrorists, but that's only one tiny slice. Look at the other stories that you don't know of. Look at Rumi, look at the poetry, look at the architecture, look at, you know, because architecture, for example, the Taj Mahal is an example of Islamic architecture, but it's, you know, it has got Quranic verses on it. And it's meant to be an architectural representation of what paradise should be like. And it's, and, you know, to think about that paradise, that this, this building is a monument, of course, to, um, Montas Mahal, but also is a reflection of the beauty that lies at the heart of Islam. That because only something that is so beautiful could produce something so beautiful. So trying to emphasize not only that there was this beautiful element, but trying to explain to people that why do people do bad things in the name of religion? And this got me into this idea of promoting literacy about religion. How can you make people 
literate about the nature of religion because religious illiteracy, for me, it became apparent, is one of the, the greatest dangers of our society. Uh, because if people are not able to understand and engage with religious difference, it leads to fear, it leads to stereotypes, it leads to dehumanization, and sometimes it may actually lead to acts of violence, it may lead to genocide, um, and so on. So my concern after 9-11 was, how do I make people literate about the nature of religion? Because this religious illiteracy, if it is, if it goes unchecked, you know, has the possibility of destroying the social fabric of society. So, so 9-11 became sort of a turning point for me in terms of not just what am I doing at the university, but what can I be doing beyond the walls of the university, beyond the ivory towers? Um, because it, I think it's the responsibility of universities to be educating people in the larger community. So I've, in that extent, I've, you know, started teaching in the Harvard Division of Continuing Education online courses for people who are just doing, you know, learning for learning's sake. So, and then eventually it ended up in me creating a course on Harvard X a MOOC course on understanding Islam through its scripture, which was centered on the Quran. It took a lot of effort to get that in and, you know, ready, and it took me several years. But it's so gratifying now to know that that course is up. It's available free online. And I've had over 80,000 people take that course from around the world. And when you read their comments and you think, okay, this is far more effective way of reaching out to people um, than any book that I could write, really, you know, and that, um, you know, it's it's been an interesting adventure in that sense that how do you go, how do you teach the, the larger public about these issues? Um, Dr. Sani, we'd like to know about uh, your collaborations with other musical artists uh, and your interest in the arts. Yes. Um, so this, uh, my interest in the arts, as I mentioned before, uh, is, you know, when I started thinking about religion as a multi-sensory experience um, and how the aesthetic is fused with the philosophical, the ethical, the moral, and so on. And that, you know, when, uh, when we're listening to say a ginan or a devotional song, it is engaging both our heart and our mind. Uh, and um, I think artists play a very important role, not just as entertainers. Sometimes people just look at artists or oh, they're entertainers, but they're actually transmitters of knowledge because through their music, um, through the lyrics they're singing and the way they sing, they become in a way, teachers, because they're transmitting knowledge, but they're transmitting knowledge not in the conventional sense, but in a uh, in a sense that I would say is emotive. And that kind of knowledge can be quite transformative. Um, we know about this, for example. So, in the Quran, there, you know, when the, you know, it 
you know, it talks about the Quran as as an example of, of a beautiful text, a beautiful scripture, and that it is a text that, you know, that makes the skin shiver uh, and causes the heart to melt. So even the Quran in its oral form was meant to be experienced. So when I started thinking about religion this way, about the multi-sensory and experiential, um, obviously, you know, the kinds of people I started um, thinking, uh, looking at very differently were some artists. So for example, Salim uh, and Suleiman Merchant, who I would see them performing these concerts and then in the presence of the Imam, and then they would go on these tours, um, and and I would also hear that how Hazimam had encouraged them to do sing devotional music, and I thought this is very interesting. And then I heard uh, an interview um, uh, with them in which I think it's either Salim or Suleiman, you know, says that we're sort of like missionaries, and that you know really you know, really excited me because it says this is exactly what I was saying, that in many cultures, religion is transmitted by artists. So you think before there were religious education schools or a whole curriculum, how were ideas passed around, like with the Ginats transmitted from one generation to singing and poetry. So when I started thinking about it that way, I you know, every opportunity I got, I would invite artists to Harvard. So I had Salim and Suleiman come. I had uh, Salman Ahmed, who was the, uh, uh, you know, at the, of the band Junoon and involved in Sufi rock. I not only invited him to come to Harvard for a performance and so on, but I actually wrote a whole article about how he came to develop Sufi rock uh, and spent a lot of time with him. Um, to learn about his journey uh, and how he's able to combine, you know, the Beatles and uh, you know, and other sort of hard rock things with Kawali and so on, and come up with this Sufi, you know, Sufi rock. Very interesting story. And then uh, Royal Hayat, who was a you know, uh, used to be involved with Coke Studio when it first came. I had the opportunity to, to have very many conversations with him, which was very instrumental in helping me think how, you know, music, you know, we talk about organic food and, you know, he talks about, you know, how organic music can be so healing, you know, as opposed to, you know, so long as it's in harmony with nature as opposed to, you know, some of these artificial constructions, which can be very destructive. Um, and then I think, you know, what was gratifying for me was that uh, because of this approach that I would highlight in my courses, um, I had, the, uh, you know, the uh, the privilege of actually mentoring someone like Ali Sethi, who came to Harvard as an undergraduate from Pakistan, he had his own sort of conceptions of what Islam was being growing up in Pakistan. But when he started taking my courses and saw that actually what that Islam has all these multi-sensory aspects to it, and that these kawalis and ghazals and stuff that he actually grew up with are actually part of Islam and a way of transmitting knowledge about the faith. 
uh, and then seeing him take that up. And over time, of course, and he's now developed into a great artist in his own right. So it, it's also very gratifying to, that I was not, I was working not only with established artists, but was able to inspire someone to actually go into the art and make a career, even though it was very difficult, you know, to do so. And so it's, um, uh, it's again, like for a teacher to see a student, you know, just flourish and now become this international superstar, you know, was uh, so gratifying to think about the little seeds that I planted and how they blossom. So, um, and I'm always sort of looking to talk to artists, you know, even people who sing, you know, geets in our Ismaili community, I consider them artists. I, and I've done some work on the research on the geets, and I'm hoping to do more uh, of this kind of work, looking at Ismaili artists and the role they play in transmitting tradition. That's amazing. Any advice you would give to people who aspire to join academia in general and moreover in fields like Islamic studies? Yeah. Well, this is a, you know, um, that's a, that's a very, um, uh, I would say topical. The concern today, especially now with the decline in the humanities, um, which is for a variety of reasons, you know, higher education, especially colleges, everything's become so vocational and people see the, the role of even an undergraduate career with like, you know, education, what career am I going to get in? Where am I going to make the money? And for obvious, I mean, and it's not wrong to think like that because people sometimes, especially first generation students and so on, you know, they, they need, you know, the economic concerns are in the forefront and as well as the, of their families. So I can understand where that comes from, but it's meant that there has been a decline in the humanities. So anybody who tries to go into the uh, into the field, you know, faces a lot of competition. But I would say that it is so. So people can do two things about it. one. You could you could also you could major in it. But if you have the passion for it, I think you should go with your heart because I have seen consistently that people who are passionate about a subject the way forward opens to them, if not directly in an academic career, but the knowledge that they have can become very, you know, important to make them instruments of change. So whatever career they end up pursuing, the knowledge base that they have acquired will, in fact, you know, help them become agents of change in the larger society. So, I would say I would encourage people to take courses in Islamic studies generally just so that they know more, regardless of what whatever you're studying, you could be doing medicine or engineering, but to know about your faith, uh, its history, and how to make literate people literate about the nature of religion, to set the record straight, um, you can become agents of change. I think that is very important. And those who want to focus on it as a subject, I would say, if your heart is in it, just do it. Because uh, I've seen so many people who go into finance or who go into um, um, engineering 
and then they find that the heart is not in it. And they're, you know, so people write and say, okay, now what do I do? I'm so interested in this. And I would say, just follow your passion and see where it leads you. Um, I think many people like to have a safety barrier, like just in case it doesn't work out. Sure, find out your safety barriers and put those up there in case things don't work out. You know, and I and there are various strategies that people can do. But if you're passionate about this, I think you should learn as much as you can. And there's so much online material available. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Smiley Connection. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Ali Asani or learn more about any of the resources he mentioned, check out the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It takes less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Reach out to us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Kes Ali. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the stellar Amal Musa. Kareem Javed and Dilshad Ali, our amazing relationship management team, were extremely instrumental in helping to reach and report for this episode. Our cover art is designed by the skilled Shaquille Muhammad. Also, many thanks to Zoa Momin, the Head of Strategic Initiatives at IPN.